0: Well, as we continue on in First Peter this week, we are now in uh, chapter three, verses 18 to 22. Um, now really, in this section of First Peter three, and all throughout, uh, well the first half of chapter four, really, Peter really is just exhorting uh, the churches that he is writing to to be able to endure suffering well, to be able to endure suffering in obedience to Jesus Christ. And the way that he's doing that, in these verses in particular, is Peter is reminding us of the great victory that Christ has won through suffering himself. And so that's what we'll see when we read verses 18 to 22. It's a reminder both of Jesus' suffering, but also of his great victory. And so after we read that, I want us to look at a couple other passages that will um, just help expand our minds, I hope, expand our understanding of this great victory that Jesus Christ has won. Um, And so after Matt comes up and reads to us from 1 Peter, then John will come and read 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26, which describes again that great victory that Christ has in his resurrection and the ongoing victory that he is accomplishing. Uh, Then Moira will come and read for us from Revelation 5, 1-14, and this is again echoing what we read in 1 Peter 3. It's an actual description of those angels, authorities, and powers that uh, 1 Peter 3 speaks of that John sees in his revelation that he describes in 5, 1 to 14. And then lastly, Krista uh, will come up for us and read uh, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, uh, which is just a little bit further on in Peter, but it's again reminding us of the main point of our passage that we will suffer as Christians, but when we suffer, we can rejoice. And so let's listen to this great victory that we rejoice in and also to the suffering that we are called to endure now. So Matt, if you want to come on up and begin our reading.
1: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring you to God, he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him.
0: First Corinthians 15, 20 through 26 But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead He has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death.
2: Revelation 5, verses 1 to 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. First Peter four, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed.
0: I've come to be persuaded that uh, one of the most neglected tools that Christians are to have in our tool belt for Christian living is the tool of imagination. Uh, Imagination often gets a bad name because when we think of imagination, we usually think of uh, storytelling, right? We think of something like, you know, Disney or fiction of some kind. Uh, When we think of little kids with imagination, we think of little kids who are just dreaming about things that aren't really there, you know, who don't really live in the real world, uh, and as a result, we don't tend to think very much of imagination. And yet, I think when we come to this section of 1 Peter in particular, these verses here, verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3, it really is a call for us as Christians to use our imaginations for Good to use our imaginations to envision things that are actually true. You know, Imagination, if you think about it, really is a, a critical tool. You, you have to use your imagination whenever you think of something that you haven't already seen, right? When you, whenever you think of something that's not right in front of you, you do have to think kind of creatively. You have to use your mind. You have to expand just you know, what's right in front of you, and you have to imagine something that isn't there. I mean, just take a simple example. Let's say you want to build your dream house, right? Well, if you want to build your dream house, you first have to dream of the dream house, right? You have to be able to imagine the house that you want. And only if you can first imagine that house, can you possibly build it. Well, much of the Christian life must begin in our imaginations. But again, we're such a rational culture. We're such a rational people. When we come to God's word, we so often just want to understand it in rational terms, and we don't often think about how beneficial it could be for us to use our imaginations in order to engage with the Lord, in order to understand the work of Jesus Christ, and in order to walk the walk of faith. And so as we go through our text this morning, I really want to encourage us to use our imaginations to understand what Peter is saying here. Because I think if you don't have any imagination, if if you're not dreaming bigger than just what's right in front of you right now, you just will not be able to understand this text. It won't be able to have the effect upon your heart that it ought to have. So we need to use our imaginations to envision things, to dream of things that we haven't seen if we're really going to learn to live for Christ in the way that this text speaks of. Now, before jumping into this text, just one more kind of a practical application before we move in. Imagination is often used negatively. So, people who struggle with things like worry or things like anxiety, we don't typically think of that as a problem with imagination, but most often it really is a problem with imagination, We we dream of bad things that could possibly happen, and because our imaginations are so powerful, because we're so effective at really thinking that this bad thing that we're imagining could come true, it affects our whole emotional life, doesn't it? I mean, when you imagine something bad that could happen, and it's just kind of stuck in your head because it seems so vivid, so real, it can ruin a day, it can ruin a whole week, It can even ruin your life if you let it, if that anxiety, if that evil imagination is always playing in your mind. And so what I'm going to encourage, again, as we go through this passage, is to use your imagination almost in the reverse, you know, to instead of imagining things that could go wrong, terrible things that could happen, dwelling on those things and letting those things depress you, sink you, get you down, we need to use our imaginations positively, Imagine how great Christ is, how great God is, how great is the victory that Christ has won, how great is the place where Jesus Christ is seated right now. And again, don't just think of those things in rational terms, like this is a true proposition or something like that. But imagine it. Envision it. Think of it as a real thing happening right now. What does your mind see? How does your imagination create it? And when your imagination is able to go there, when you're able to envision it as a real thing, as a real place, then it's able to have the effect upon your heart that it is supposed to have. And so with that, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Now, what I want to do first is just read this text through again. I know it's a confusing text. Uh, I'm not going to have all the answers for you, but I want to read it through again just so it's kind of fresh in our minds. I'm going to connect it to what comes right before and right after, and then we'll walk through the verses themselves. So 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. having been subjected to him now there's a lot of big ideas there isn't there christ suffering righteous unrighteous bring us to god christ going in the spirit to proclaim to spirits that are in prison us being saved through baptism in the same way that noah and his family were saved through the water jesus now reigning at the right hand of god the father I mean, these are all really huge ideas and really powerful ideas. And if we're not careful, this passage can just kind of come out of the blue and just be like, well, what is this even here for? What does this mean? And so we need to use the context, especially in a passage like this, to know why is Peter writing these things? What effect are all these amazing truths? What effect are these things supposed to have upon us? And fortunately, because of the context of these verses, it is very easy to tell what Peter is ultimately driving at. What does he want us to learn from verses 18 to 22? So go back to verse 17, the verse immediately preceding, and Peter writes, "...for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So he's talking about suffering and he's talking about doing good while suffering. So not reviling in return like we've read before in Peter, not lashing out in response, but suffering humbly, suffering lovingly, doing good while suffering. That's, that's what comes immediately before. And then look where Peter goes immediately after. So 1 Peter 4 verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So again, the results, the the, the outcome of all these verses, eighteen to twenty two, that Peter has written, is verse one of chapter four. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So what Peter is writing here is intended to somehow prepare us to suffer to make us ready to suffer as Christians. So even if maybe we can't totally hash out all the details in these verses, like what does it mean when Christ went in the Spirit to proclaim to spirits in prison, even if we don't know exactly what those details may mean, we do know that what Peter wants to accomplish through these verses is to make us a people who are prepared to suffer well. And so that's the lens that I want to look at these verses through. Just how do these things prepare us to suffer well? So in order to answer that question, I just want to go through these verses, verse by verse, to see what tools Peter might be giving us here so that we can endure the suffering of this life. Now the suffering that Peter is talking about is in particular the suffering that we might experience as Christians. So again, we're sharing the gospel with someone. They decide they don't like us anymore. They're not talking to us anymore. That might be a real kind of suffering we experience, but I think that the tools that Peter gives here do apply to any kind of suffering we may have. So if we have physical suffering because of sickness or injury, if we have emotional suffering, we're suffering from depression or rejection in some way, relational suffering, our families are not getting along, our marriage is not healthy, those type of things, all of these things are forms of suffering that we experience in this life. And the tools that Peter gives us here to essentially look beyond this life, I think are tools that can equip us for every kind of suffering, especially the suffering that we experience as Christians for our faith, but any other kind of suffering that we may experience too. So with that in mind, let's begin at verse 18. So, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Alright, I want to pause us there. I think there are two tools that Peter is giving us in these phrases that we might endure suffering well. And both of these tools that Peter is giving us, I think, require us to use our imaginations if we are really to lay hold of them and use them well. The first tool that he gives us is just found in the very first four words of that verse. For Christ also suffered for Christ also suffered. Now the way in which you have to use your imagination to grasp the significance of this verse is in particular on that word Christ. What does it mean that Christ also suffered? Okay, this verse would not mean much if it just said something like, and Sam also suffered, or and Rob also suffered, right? Who cares if Sam suffered? Who cares if Rob suffered? It doesn't matter if I suffer or if you suffer. But what is remarkable here, what we have to use our imaginations to grasp, is that Christ also suffered. Who is Christ? Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, right? For chosen one, for anointed one. And if you think of the Jewish idea of Messiah, The Jewish Messiah was the one who was supposed to come and was supposed to rescue the whole world, was basically the hero of the whole human story, right? The great champion of every battle, the great fulfillment of all of history, right? This is who the Christ is. This is who the Messiah is. And this is what calls for us to use our imaginations. We can't just think of Christ as one, what is it? five-letter word, six-letter word. We can't think of it as a six-letter word that's in our Bibles, right? When we read the word Christ, we have to imagine just how magnificent this title is, just how great, how powerful this title is. And then especially when we come to the New Testament revelation of the Messiah, and we realize that the Christ is not only the hero of all of history, not only the champion of every battle, not only the the deliverer from all of our suffering, but is also the very Son of God. I mean, again, our our imaginations themselves cannot even wrap, wrap themselves around this idea of God having a Son. And the Son of God, being equal with God, being one with God, and yet being incarnate in the flesh on this human earth... This is who the Christ is. When we expand our imaginations and we can understand, we can start to grasp how glorious this Christ is. How enormous it is that there even is someone who is called the Christ. When we come to see who the Christ is and we read, Christ also suffered. Do you start to see how that can just turn your world on its head? You see, when we, in our own imaginations, picture a hero, picture a champion, picture a victor, we picture someone who escaped suffering, right? Who doesn't undergo suffering. Who lived a good life. Who never failed at anything. Who never suffered in any way. And yet, Peter's first words to these Christians, these who have set apart Jesus as the Christ, set apart Jesus as the Messiah, and telling them, That Christ also suffered. It's like, well, okay. (laughs) I guess if Christ suffered, if the hero of all of human history, if the very Son of God suffered, then, I mean, surely I can suffer, right? I mean, who am I compared to him? If he suffered, then why should I expect any better? Jesus himself told his disciples that if they persecuted the Master, then they will also persecute the servant. And that's what we are. We're just servants of the Christ. We're followers of the Christ. And so if the Christ suffered, then we ourselves expect to suffer. So that's where Peter begins. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Okay, now that's the next place I want to pause here in verse 18. That he might bring us to God. Now, what is it that brings us to God? As verse 18 says, it is the suffering of the Christ for sins, where he is the righteous one and we are the unrighteous ones. And because he suffered in this way, He can bring us to God. That's what verse 18 is clearly saying. Beloved, it is only through the atoning suffering, the substitutionary suffering of Jesus Christ that you can come to God. All right. Do not expect to come to God if your sin has not already been punished in Jesus Christ. And how is your sin punished in Jesus Christ? Well, Christ himself, of course, did the work, but scripture teaches us that when we place our faith in him, when we trust him, when we believe in him, that is when our sin is counted as punished in him so that we can be brought to God. And so if you were here this morning and you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I warn you that you are not brought to God. You are still under the judgment of God. You are still far from God. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he indeed has suffered, has died for your sins, the righteous for you, the unrighteous one, then it says that you have this hope that you can be brought to God. Now, again, how does this help us with suffering? And how do we need our imaginations here? Well, again, In the Bible, and in life in general probably, there's no word that is more overlooked than that word God. I mean, just, again, imagine it. When Peter says that Christ suffered in this way, that he might bring us to God, what effect is that supposed to have on us? How is that supposed to help us? So often we let words like that just go in one ear, out the other ear, read on. What else is there? But just understand how glorious this is. How indeed there is nothing more glorious that has ever been written. That Christ suffered that we might be brought to God. Beloved, God Himself is the hope of all mankind. He is the only one in all of existence who is perfect, who is eternal who is eternally joyful, who is eternally worthy, who is eternally majestic, who is eternally glorious, who can satisfy every single longing of your heart. This is who God is. And this is who Jesus brings us to. Beloved, if you are brought to God, then you should be able to look on your life right now on any kind of suffering that you may be experiencing. Anything that's uncomfortable, anything that's unpleasant, anything you don't like, look on all those things over here. And then again, use your imagination to look over here upon God. How great He is, how glorious He is, how we cannot even fathom the slightest percentage of His glory right now. And how Scripture tells us if we simply believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ, we will be brought to this God. And what could you possibly have to complain about? What suffering could possibly be so bad that you cannot have hope? You do not have something good and glorious to look forward to. But again, if this is going to have the proper effect upon your soul, then you must have this enormous idea of who God is. I know theology for many people is, is a bad word or is a boring word. You know, I mean, who wants to read these huge books of theology? Who wants to use up their brain cells thinking about these ideas that our brains can't even comprehend anyways? You know, who wants to think about what does it mean that God is perfect or that he's an eternal or unchangeable or blessed? Or, you know, you've probably heard all kinds of attributes of God that maybe have just like made your mind go dull. But beloved, if you don't have food for thought, If you don't have food for your imagination to think about how great and how glorious God is, then this message that Christ brings us to God will not fill you with the kind of hope that it ought to fill you with. Theology should be the frequent language of Christians, not because we're just nerds or because we like to think about hard things, but because God is really wonderful and we really want to know him and really want to understand him. And that's why we care about theology. I mean, there is maybe one other way that you can expand your mind to know the goodness of God besides studying theology, and that is to go and to read the prophets. So I don't know how many of you have taken the time to read through Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, these books. But when you read through them, one thing you find, one thing that I always find, is that they are probably the hardest books of the Bible to understand. Now, why are they so hard to understand? Well, I think they're so hard to understand because the prophets have a revelation of God. <laughs> because they are, are seeing God. I mean, Isaiah 6, Isaiah seeing God in his temple. Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel is seeing God in his temple. Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah is seeing God in his temple. And when they see God like that, Their minds explode. Their their imaginations themselves can't capture who God is. The book of Revelation, another book hard to understand. Why? Because John is coming into the presence of God. God is just so much bigger than we can fathom, so much more wonderful than we can fathom. And if we don't have an enormous concept of who God is, if we don't understand how God is so good as to be overwhelming, as to be better than anything that we can even sense right now if we don't understand God in that way. And again, we won't understand the enormous hope that we have in the midst of suffering. We won't understand why it's such a big deal that Jesus died on a cross and rose again. Why is that a big deal? Because he brings us to God. And so this is the second tool that Peter's giving us here in these verses. The first tool, again, is that Christ suffered. Christ suffered. Imagine the wonder of Christ and that he suffered. That equips you to suffer. Imagine that he suffered to bring you to God. That equips you to suffer because now you're brought to God. And this is just the beginning of what Peter has written in order to equip our hearts to suffer well. So let's keep going. So Christ suffered once for sins, righteous to the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, this next part is again the most complicated part of these verses. Many commentaries I read said these are probably the most difficult verses to interpret in all the New Testament, which is saying something. Uh, but let's read them now and see what sense we can make of them. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. And we'll pause there. So, I'm just gonna give you my best interpretation of these verses. I think whether you go with my interpretation or whether you might choose some other interpretation, I think the effect is the same. And of course, after I give my interpretation, I wanna talk about the effect that it is supposed to have upon our hearts. So, Stay with me in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Jesus rose again from the dead. That's what Peter's speaking of. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits imprisoned. So I think what this is talking about is that after Jesus rose from the dead, maybe it was before he came back to earth, or maybe it was after he came back to earth, but he actually went to the place where the spirits are in prison. Now, what does it mean that the spirits are in prison? I think when Peter talks about the spirits that are in prison, he is talking about spiritual beings that are under judgment. Spiritual beings that are in prison. Now, in Scripture, we read about spiritual beings from the very beginning to the very end, right? The very beginning, the very first spiritual being we encounter, aside from God himself, is that serpent, right? That snake that shows up in the garden. And so from the very beginning, we have this this concept of a spiritual being who has been disobedient to God, who has rebelled against God. And in Genesis chapter 1 to 12, we read about all kinds of Things that are very hard for our brains to understand about the sons of God coming down and knowing the daughters of men and all of these things. And so it seems that, especially at the beginning, the world that God created was a place that was full of spiritual beings. Besides just humans and God, there was this whole array of angels and cherubim and seraphim. Some who were obedient to God, some who were disobedient to God. And so there were these spiritual beings that were disobedient to God and they were put in prison. And so what did Jesus do? Well, after he died, after he came alive again in the spirit, he went to the prison where they were being held and he proclaimed to them. Now, what did he proclaim to them? The text doesn't exactly tell us, but we can assume that if he proclaimed to them after rising from the dead, then he is proclaiming to them his victory. That they, the spirits of evil, truly have been conquered. And that he truly is arisen from the dead. That he is alive. And that the spiritual forces of darkness no longer have any power over him. No longer have any power over this world. And so what is Peter doing and telling us these things? Again, what is the effect that he is trying to have upon our hearts? Well, I think the effect he's trying to have in this phrase is twofold. Onefold is he is again trying to expand our imaginations, okay? Trying to understand that we don't simply live in this moral world where we can do, you know, good things or bad things and we get rewarded for good things or punished for bad things, and that's kind of the end of the story. No, Peter is trying to remind his readers that we live in this world that is shot through with the glory of God, that is shot through with spiritual realities. And committing evil deeds doesn't just have small consequences. Doing right things doesn't just have small consequences. But rather, when you disobey God, when you do evil deeds, even if you are a majestic spiritual being, then you have consequences, you go to this prison, this spiritual prison. And so one thing he's trying to do is he's trying to basically frighten his readers to remind them, don't walk in evil deeds. Don't disobey God as the spirits did. And as Christ had to go and proclaim his victory over them, rather, submit to God. But the other thing that Peter is doing is he is reminding them, and Peter will go on to remind them more of this, but he is reminding them that they are on the side of victory over these spiritual forces that even though they feel that they are being persecuted, even though they feel that the world and maybe even cosmic powers are against them, Peter is saying the only thing that is against you is the very thing that Christ himself is allowing. Because he has victory, because he has already gone to the spiritual places, he has already proclaimed his victory there. And so, beloved, when you are suffering... Remember that it is not just a material universe that we live in. It's not just cells of your body that are hurting or brain cells or things like that. You have a soul that will live forever. You have a spiritual aspect of who you are. Whether you choose good or evil will have eternal spiritual consequences. And Jesus Christ sees those consequences, he knows those consequences, and he wants you to enjoy the eternal consequences for good. And so when Peter says he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, he's reminding us both that Jesus has victory over these dark powers And he's also reminding us that there is this consequence for those who do not obey. Okay, but how do we have hope after that kind of threatening message, right? After this message that those who do not obey were put in prison? Well, this is where Peter turns to the lesson that we can gain from Noah and his family. So even though God punished those disobedient spirits in the days of Noah, and even though those spirits are still in prison... Verse 20 of 1 Peter 3, it says, In which a few, sorry, the ark, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have this picture of the spirits who were punished because of their disobedience. But even though these spirits were punished because of their disobedience, there were some people that were saved. There were eight people that were saved. And the reason why I think Peter specifies eight people is he's probably writing to some churches that were probably no more than eight people. And they probably felt like the whole world was against them. They probably felt like all this suffering was falling upon them, that the world was almost coming to an end for them. And yet Peter writes to them to remind them of the days of Noah, when the whole world literally was coming to an end, when the flood came, destroyed all the world. But what did God do in the midst of that flood? He saved eight people. He rescued them from a flood that destroyed the whole earth. And so, again, Peter is calling his readers to imagine, do you want to be saved? Do you want to experience the glory of a new creation? Let's say the whole world is falling apart. Let's say disaster is coming. Does that mean you're doomed? Does that mean you have no hope? No, remember, Noah, remember the eight that were saved through water, And if you want to be saved in the same way that Noah was saved, how can you be saved? Well, the answer that verse 21 gives us is baptism. Baptism is how we experience that same salvation that Noah himself experienced. And what is baptism? Except placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saying when we go under the water in baptism... The death of Christ is my death. That's what going under the water signifies. And when we come up from the water in baptism, we have newness of life in Jesus Christ, so I'm united to Christ in his death and in his life. So just like verse 18 was saying, Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's what baptism is symbolizing, that we our unrighteousness goes under the water and dies. Our new self, our new created self, comes out of the water, a new being, Alive in Jesus Christ, a righteous person. And just in the same way, the flood waters of Noah day, Noah's day killed everything that was wicked, but lifted up the boat of those who were righteous. So, in the same way that water was both judgment and life in the days of Noah, so the water of baptism is both judgment and life for us. So, I especially encourage any of you that have not experienced baptism that have not trusted in Jesus Christ and gone through his death with him, been raised up in the resurrection with him in the sign that is in baptism, to receive that enormous blessing so that you can be confident, just as Peter is speaking of, so that you be confident that you are escaping the judgment that is coming. That you have this great hope that Noah had of entering into a new creation, And then finally, the last instrument that Peter gives us for enduring suffering today comes to us at the close of verse 21 and in verse 22. So our baptism happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, again, if you can understand that verse without using your imagination, I want to know how, right? If any of you have ever studied an angel under the microscope, please let me know because I would like to know what that looks like. Rather, when Peter is writing about Jesus Christ raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of God, with angels all around him, With authorities, which are somehow different than angels, but powerful, obviously, because their name is authorities. And powers, which are separate from authorities and angels also around Jesus Christ. All subjected to him, right? Just like we read in Revelation 5, all of these spiritual heavenly beings bowing before the throne, proclaiming glory and honor to Jesus Christ, Beloved, just let your imagination be flooded with the wonder of that image. Again, if you cannot imagine it, if you cannot picture it in your mind's eye, then you certainly will not believe that it is true and that it is happening right now. And so allow your mind to run wild with how beautiful that must be, with how glorious that must be. Beloved, that is our hope if we are in Christ if you have trusted in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then your hope is not merely that your life here is going to go well, that you're going to escape some earthly suffering. Your hope is ultimately that one day you will be at that throne room where you have God in the middle. Remember, Christ has brought you to God. Where you have God at the middle, where you have Christ at the right hand of God. And then, all around, God and Christ. You have these angels. You have these authorities. You have these powers. And again, think of the prophets. Think of Isaiah 6 with these cherubim flying around all the time, screaming, holy, 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 is the Lord of God of hosts. Beloved, we are invited to that scene. But maybe even the more wonderful thing is not only are we invited to that scene, Not only are we invited to behold and to hear and to smell how wonderful that place is going to be, but we are invited to belong there. We are invited to be so joined to Jesus Christ that we ourselves are counted as sons of God. Beloved, no one here, no one here has an imagination great enough to imagine how great that is, how wonderful that day will be. And so again, take the time, take the time today, tonight, tomorrow, take a little bit of time every day, let your heart be flooded with these glorious truths. That Christ is the Messiah, that he suffered, that he died for you, that you might come to God, that he is triumphant over these spirits, imprisoned, that you can be saved just as Noah was saved through baptism, and that you are welcome in this spiritual assembly with angels, authorities, and powers surrounding you, worshiping God and worshiping the Lamb. Beloved, if that doesn't get your heart beating, if that doesn't get you excited, if that doesn't fill you with hope, then I promise you there's nothing else that will. There's nothing on earth that will do that for you. There's certainly nothing better in the heavens. And so fill your mind with these wonderful thoughts. Let your heart be flooded with the grace of God. Use fiction, use the prophets, use books of theology, use whatever you have to use to ascertain, to understand how glorious this God is, how glorious this future is that awaits us if we hold fast to him in love. And as that happens, don't be afraid to suffer here because the sufferings that we experience right now are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these amazing words of your Apostle Peter who saw so clearly the the glorious um, spiritual aspects of our salvation that we are brought to you and that we are brought to this throne room with Christ at your right hand and angels and authorities and powers and, and that we have these things to look forward to. Father, I pray that you truly will empower us to believe in the reality of these things, to behold them with our mind's eye, to to hold them in the eye of our imagination so that we can delight and rejoice in these things. I pray in that way, Lord, that you would prepare us to suffer whatever arrows the world may shoot at us so that we can be faithful to you and so that we can know the eternal hope that you have called us to. God, would you hear these prayers now that we offer on our behalf, on behalf of the lost around us, and on behalf of the dying world that we're in the midst of.